This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. So what would you do if you ordered and drank a bottle of wine that turned out to be more expensive, way more expensive than you expected? We're going to tell you a story about that today, and it's going to tick you off. It even ticked off Paul. And I'm a really nice guy. Well, not what I call him. I'm Rick Cushman. (laughs) I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today, we've got that horrible price dilemma, lots of questions from listeners, some pretty awful wine writing, and as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're starting with a tale of woe. It comes from NewJersey.com, and that's a major news website connected to 12 New Jersey papers, including the Star-Ledger, which is a pretty big league paper. So this is a real story, at least we think. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, and in case you're new to us, we thought we'd let you know who we are so you know why you're rolling your eyes at us. My friend Paul <laughs> here is a respected industry pro. He answers questions on allexpert.com, teaches at Napa Valley College and the CIA and around the world, sometimes in some pretty great spots. Makes me jealous. And yet he hangs out with me, and there goes his reputation. That's right. You're killing me, Rick. I'm sorry. Uh, but on the other hand, Rick... You are a New York Times bestselling author, longtime journalist, wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, and chief judge of the California State Fair. Makes you wonder what those people are thinking. I want to know what you wear under the robe. Yeah, well, I'm not telling. (laughs) All right, here's our story. It starts with a guy named Joe, and he was on a business dinner at Bobby Flay Steak at the Borgata Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. This is really about the Borgata, not about Bobby Flay. I think that it is separate, but that's the place. Mm -hmm. So the host of the dinner, this is a guy paying the bill, and he had about 10 people for a business dinner. It's a business dinner. And he tells Joe, pick the wine. Joe says he doesn't know about much much about wine, so he tells the waitress, I don't know much about wine. Hmm. And he asks for a recommendation. Joe, and this is Joe being quoted now. Joe pointed to a bottle on the menu. He said, he said, she pointed to a bottle on the menu and I didn't have my glasses. I asked how much, and she said thirty-seven fifty. So the bottle shows up. They're in conversation. They're really not there for the food or wine. This is a business dinner. Joe doesn't consider it a big deal. He's not a wine guy. It's not about the wine. She shows him the bottle. He tastes it, went through the motions. As he says, it wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. It was fine. Dinner goes on. They're talking. They're talking business. The bill comes. It stuns everyone. The total was $4,700, including tax. Yeah. Now, this is a business center. They thought it was, you know, maybe $100 a head, $4,700. Turns out the wine, Screaming Eagle. Okay. Oakville, 2011. Yep. The cost was $3,750. Joe thought $3,750 was $37.50. So before we go on to the rest of the story... Paul, what do you do if this well, is I got a couple questions here. Um, first of all, 10 people at the table, one bottle of wine? Well, my question, too. But I mean, they're... so that struck me as being a little odd. Yeah. Second question, Screaming Eagle, when you buy it from the winery, it's about 600 bucks a bottle. There's a markup on this baby if they're selling it at 37.50. Good point. Multiplied by more than six, yow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and both of those things make me think there's something going on here that we don't know about. Maybe, maybe Joe owed somebody in the casino a large amount of money if you get my drift. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how he was going to pay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, back to our actual story. So Joe and his host, the, the host of the dinner, the guy paying the bill, they, they called the waitress over. And they said they thought – Joe says, I thought it was thirty-seven fifty. I would never order a $3,750 wine. Joe says he wouldn't order a $150 bottle of wine, without, at least without checking. The waitress disagreed. So they called over the maitre d', who's also the manager. And the people at the table said they heard Joe say, I don't know much about wine. Can you pick one for us? Yeah. They said they also thought it was thirty-seven fifty. So the manager offered to give them. Said, well, what the manager said was, here, let's pay the dinner bill since that on not in dispute. Right. And then we'll talk about this. So okay. then they That's said, "That's a good step." Well, I have questions about that. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. The next best price, the restaurant said, that it would charge them their cost, which they said was twenty-two hundred dollars. Only if they're buying it at auction years after it's been released. I know. Yeah. Eventually, these folks sucked it up, and they paid. 
Man, you know, if I'm the table sitting next to those people, I am never going back to that restaurant. I'm not going back to that restaurant. Now, now, right? now uh, there's more to the story because NewJersey.com being newspaper, they call them. But I, I want to say right there, I do, not, I do not like that move where the manager says, pay the bill, pay the food bill, and let's talk about and the we'll wine. And we'll talk about the wine. Basically, that's a negotiating ploy to get you halfway there. Yeah, okay. and I I think yeah. that I think that you don't give them a penny till you get this thing figured yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're th- yeah, fair enough. You're thinking about it from the consumer advocate yeah. point of view. Yeah, That's yeah, a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I don't. I also don't think that from a good restaurant standpoint that I think that puts if you're trying even if you're trying to be a nice restaurant about it. Right. I still think that puts the customers in a in a bad position. I so yep. so yep. either way, whether you're kind of forcing yep. them one way or the other, I just I don't like that move. Yeah. Well, I got a couple of funniest stories. Funny stories along these lines that have happened to me. So when we're done with this one, maybe right. we'll talk about right. a couple of other situations so, in restaurants. So this is where it makes you actually like the Borgata a little bit less. when It is it is their response. Not that you were loving them at this point anyway. Right. But, uh, so their response... Well, especially is, because the, t- the table next door is saying, come on, we, we saw the same thing happen here. Now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, NewJersey.com, Newark, Newark Star Ledger. It's actually now it's just called the Star Ledger because it's all of New Jersey. And all those folks, they call, they ask about this story because that's, I guess, where Joe went. They, um, the Borgata said it conducted a thorough investigation. Now, I always love this. They conducted a <laughs> thorough investigation. They actually also said that they had video of, not that that would show you anything, but they had video because it's a casino. They have video of everything. Right. They have video right. of you walking but down the hall. But a guy who says he doesn't know anything about wine, why are you pouring him a Absolutely. $3,700 bottle of wine? First huge point. Absolutely. Right. Right. The guy doesn't know what you – and it turns out that wine is the second most expensive wine yep. on their menu. Yep. You don't give that guy – you know, you know Somebody I, who doesn't know very much about wine – Bad, bad, yeah, bad. So That's it, bad you know, service. So right at, at all kinds of levels. So yep. what? What the um they so the the casino says or the restaurant says that they believe proper practices were followed. This is from Executive Vice President Joseph Lupo. As the leading culinary destination in this region, we consistently serve as many, if not more, high end wine and spirits without incident. In this isolated case, both the server and sommelier verifi- verified the bottle requested with the. The patron verified that bottle requested with the patron. What does that mean? It means that it, they were they're obfuscating. What they're saying was that the server and the sommelier said yes, this is the bottle they ordered, which right. has nothing to do with the issue. Right, because the ser- the customer didn't actually know what he was ordering. It right. was asking right. the waitress to make a recommendation. Right. So the issues are not what was why did they suggest this and right. why weren't they clear? Yep. And you know it, it's and it, it goes on. Um, it says uh, and Borgata is confident there was no misunderstanding regarding the selection. Are you kidding me? You know, the and, table next door said there was a miscommunication yeah. about the bottle. It was selected. Well, and and basically what, what they're, they're saying, and this is like good old Joe Lupo, the executive vice president, if, yeah. if, if so they showed him the chemical formula for a heart drug he's taking <laughs> and they this, asked him if he's okay with it. Is this the one you want? Yeah. yeah. This guy had no idea what he's doing. All right. right. So, so, so now – you might be right. There may be more to the story that we don't know about, but let's talk about this as if this were the story. So we have said very clearly that the server should be, especially a wine that is high-end, should always be clear about the price. Yep. Yeah, and, and in fact, there's another conversation here, which is the host encourages Joe to order wine for the table. Yep. Well, if I'm the host or if I'm Joe, I want to have a conversation there. I want – if I'm the host, I want to say, Joe – why don't you suggest a wine? And when Joe suggests the wine, I'm going to take a look at that wine on the list because I want to know how much he's he's yeah, putting on yeah. my tab. Or if I'm Joe and the guy says, I want you to order the wine, I'm going to say to the waitress, this is the wine. Why don't you ask Mr. Cushman if this is appropriate for this dinner? And no, what I'm really saying is, is this how much you want to spend? Right. Except, of course, that you know, nobody thought it was a big deal. And in fact, okay, now, you know, I it, think the whole thing is a plant. And I think it's by lens crafters because it's a <laughs> lesson is don't ever leave Entirely home without possible. your That's glasses. Well, that, that, that may be another one of your lessons is right? if you're going out to dinner and your eyes aren't so good, bring your glasses. Hey, hey you know what? My age, in these days, when you go into a restaurant, if you forget your glasses, there are always cheaters on loan. Restaurants. A lot of restaurants have those. Absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, this was – although this is a kind of thing that could happen too because – this 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 was not a meal really about the food or wine. This was a meal about gathering for business. Right. And although um, you know, I would 
I read a couple of stories from that were follow-ups from the same folks who wrote the stories. Um, you know, so there were there were wives at the table, so it was like five couples, but it was really a business. And dinner. one bottle of wine. And, Boy, well, they must have been having a great time. Yeah, that's a good. That's a very good question too. And and actually, it's unclear. It's unclear whether that, that was the only bottle of wine ordered or not. Well, they sure didn't but, order two bottles didn't of that say, because no. their bill would have been seventy five hundred yeah. bucks. But it, um, <laughs> but it, but it really was the kind of thing where nobody's thinking about the wine, which is which right. is we've all you know mo- many many people don't think much right. about the wine. Right. So what are the lessons for we we've talked about the restaurant. Be clear, don't upsell, especially the beginner for gosh right. sakes, not to that extent. I know right. people the idea if you want to upsell somebody, make them happy about it. Tell them let exactly. them know why they're getting a better wine, but but well, and, and you know, no surprises. I mean, you want to surprise somebody? I've had a waiter once come by my table, put a glass of wine down at at a, a dessert wine at the end of the meal. And I turned to the waiter and said, I didn't order this. And he said, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. And I thought, you know what? That's a, fair enough. That's a good restaurant. That's a right. fun, pleasant surprise. And it turns out, of course, it was delicious. Right. Um, you know, I, uh, a really good example of how this plays out in another. I was once in charge of hosting a table of salespeople from around the country for a big wine company. And we all went out to a restaurant and we were supposed to order wines off the list, but they all had to be from this company. So we were, you know, there were 15 people at this table and these guys were salespeople and they knew they were supposed to support the brand and they knew which wines to drink. So they were ordering stuff. And at one point, We'd had the first course. We'd had the second course. We had a couple of different wines with the first course. We had a couple of different wines with the second course. We're going into dessert. And the waiter comes over to me and he says, you're pretty much, people have pretty much finished the last bottle of wine that you ordered for the entrees. And he showed me my tab. He literally showed me, here's where you are mm-hmm. in terms of how much wine you've ordered. Yeah. Do you want us to bring more of the wine that you've just finished, or do you want to wait and bring out something for dessert? And I thought, you know what? That's a very classy yeah, move by that Yeah, that, that is waiter. a classy move. That's right. saying, look, you and I are in this together. I don't want you to have any bad surprises. Yeah. I want you to well, be happy. But and when I, I, you know, when I go in, by the way, um, even before they bring the first wine, they do a credit check on it. You know, <laughs> that's right. Are you sure you could afford that? Because that's thirty-seven <laughs> fifty with a dot after the seven. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, and I, you know, the the funny thing is that that you know, because uh, this was a story that actually I was doing an event the other day, right? And it came up. I mean, yep. you know, so it, this is sort of in the culture at this point. Yep. And folks were asking me what you know what lessons, and of course the lessons always be clear, but you know. Yeah. That's asking a lot in a lot of ways of of a consumer to that you know to, when you say this is the wine that I you know you you ask you put yourself in their hands yep they yep. you know you they say this is what it costs you think you know what they said so you want me to start ranting about something because you know one of the things that drives me I crazy can never stop at restaurants is that you never can <laughs> is the server who comes over and says we got specials today now everything on the menu's got a price. Right, and they never tell you that. Yeah. And then yeah. they give you the specials, and they never tell you what the price is. Well, special. Oh, you wanted the special, you know, appetizer. I, That's seventeen dollars. Yeah. You know, the I, other thing about specials, by the way, they describe them the way the bad wine writers yes, describe, they do. which they give you a list yes. of ingredients, but yes. they don't even tell you if the chicken's cooked. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But but it has it has chartreuse in it. But or it something. gets back yeah. to that if if I if a if a server is recommending a wine to me, one of the things they should be recommending is they should be telling me what the price is. Right. No question right. about it. Yeah, and, and and you know, it's the same sort of thing. You, you, you don't want to say be, you know, for consumers, be, be aware, be aware, be aware, because you don't want, you're going to dinner, you're having fun, but right. the truth you're, of it is, yep. if you're ordering wine, especially if it's a place where wines are expensive, you know, you, you do kind of have to make sure that you you know what the price is. Yep. I have yeah. a, a, another little sort of funny follow-up story to that because uh, we were at our company Christmas party, and somebody had given the company two really nice bottles of champagne. So we brought them to drink them at the Christmas party because I wanted to share them with my staff. We're drinking away. And all of a sudden I look out, and there's four bottles of this wine on the table. Uh-oh. And I noticed that one of my staff members is ordering a fifth. And I walked oh. over, and this is like 300 bucks, 400 bucks a bottle. Oh. And I walked over and I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I thought we could use one more bottle. I said, wait a minute. Did you order those other two bottles? Yeah. 
She said, well, I, you ordered the first two. I said, no, I brought the first two Whoops. because they were gifts. We're not, yow. Yes. Yeah. So, and she was doing overtime work. She I was doing overtime work. All right. Well, this is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we will take some questions, and we promise we will not overcharge. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to open our mailbag and take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask a question that we can answer on the show, or at least try to answer, go to rickandpaulwine.com. <laughs> we'll give it a shot. That's all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. If you're listening on KVON or NapaBroadcasting.com, go to their websites. They will get those questions to us, too. Um, and since we've been talking about overpriced wine, I'm putting this one first because it's about the lower end of the wine list. Ah, it's your from, territory. Yeah, exactly right. Well, <laughs> you know, the lower end is pretty much always my territory, but it's not necessarily <laughs> a wine list. Um, it's from Alonzo Young in San Francisco. And he said, a couple of my friends say you should never order the cheapest wine in a restaurant because it's usually pretty bad. And I have another friend who says it's the second cheapest wine that's the worst, and they just put it there at that price point because they know you won't order the cheapest. Are they right, or do I need new friends? Okay. Well, first of all— um, New friends. I think he should always get You know what? Never bad to refresh your friends now and then. I'm his just saying. friends are trying to give him some help, so <laughs> you got to like him for that. My first, my first thought is if you're going to a restaurant and you think they're serving you bad wine at any price point, you should go to a different restaurant. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, whether it's the cheapest or the most expensive, every wine on that list ought to be something that the server thinks is good wine. Well, and I think that's actually the real answer is that, yeah. you know, I don't know. You know, that trick is it. That's another one of the urban legends and, and every wine director that I've ever talked to and all the restaurants that I go to where I do know the wines. I don't see that. You yeah. know, there are a lot of yeah. very inexpensive wines. It just happen to be inexpensive. Some wines right. are inexpensive because they don't cost a lot to make. And right. because the, 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 the wine folks want to have a one or two wines on the wine list yep. that anybody can afford, that could yep. be thirty seven fifty. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the other part of that is the, the, it is true that the second most exp, uh, least expensive wine on the list is often the most popular wine. Right, because people are thinking that the first, they don't well, want to get they, the first. They, actually, I think it's a little bit different. I think they just don't want to be accused yes, of ordering yes, the cheapest that's where thing I was going. on the list. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they'll go one step up or maybe two steps up. What is interesting, though, is when you talk to sommeliers and you ask them what if a wine isn't selling, what the sommelier does to sell more of that wine, and they will all tell you the first thing they do. Price goes up. Raise the price. I was, my thumb was, was pointing in the sky as you were saying that. That doesn't Absolutely. work on radio, right? Yeah, no, I know. I had my thumb up, folks. <laughs> you had your uh, thumb up. Yeah, it is. That's uh, true. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate that we, I mean, this is a, we've, we've, we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again, that, oh, yeah. that price and, um, and quality, price and value, which are two, quality and value are also, right. you yep. know, relative terms, yep. um, are not necessarily yeah. connected in any way. But I like that Alonzo's friends are trying to help him out a little bit and steer him, you know, to some nice, simple rules. But the real solution to this problem, only go to restaurants that serve good wine. You don't have to worry about yeah. it. So, Alonzo, I think um, what you should also do is, since your friends want you to get the expensive wine, have them pay. That's, there you go. Uh, that's what I'm yeah, saying. and they'll pick out something that's uh, thirty-seven fifty. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Our next one is from Paul Duncan in Sacramento, who says he was on vacation in Italy last month. I was in Italy not so long ago myself, so I'm just saying that because, you know, you brag. Um, and his question is, is there a certain percentage of Sangiovese that is required to qualify a wine as a super Tuscan, or is it completely up to the winemaker? Is it region-specific? And actually, Paul, what's funny is you kind of have it backwards. Aye, 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 aye. He's Paul, I, I, this is also Paul is a guy I know, I have to say, so we can't make fun of him too much. Um, okay. But, can um, we make fun of you? We can totally make fun okay. of you. That's okay. what I do. So you were Paul in Tuscany. Does, actually. You were in Tuscany. I was in Tuscany. So what did you learn about this when you were in Tuscany? Well, I was in, in the lovely Chianti Classica region. Right. And what we know is that actually super Tuscans are wines that were wines that didn't fit the specific in the regulations, right? That's so, right. So, so the so Paul's question of is there requirements? The answer is not for super Tuscans by at definition, all. right? Because super Tuscans are wines that don't fit into one of the. Now, it is true that there is a new region 
to the west of Chianti Classico called Bulgari, where they are making these blends, um, and and they do have some regulations. But the, the whole concept of a Super Tuscan was created by people who wanted to make wines that ha- gave them a little more freedom than the traditional regulations of Chianti Classico or Montalcino or my favorite region in that area just for the accent is Vino Nobile de Monte I've taught one of my friends, by the way, who uh, doesn't know much about wines but loves wine. I've, yeah. One of the phrases I've taught him is Montepulciano de Bruzzo, just because yeah. it sounds good to uh-huh. say. Yeah. So he, and, and Chateauneuf de Pop is the other word he likes. There's so Chateauneuf he walks around saying that a lot, the two of them. I tell him they're different <laughs> countries. Long story. You know, but there's actually a lot in this question that's sort of interesting. So, um, you know, one of the things about Super Tuscans was these were folks, these were winemakers, some of them really big-time winemakers with really yes. making really expensive wines that yes. were breaking from the mold. The traditional rules. And and now some of them have Super Tuscans that fit the traditional rules, yes. but they still call them Super Tuscans because now it's a term that has a kind of cachet to it. Well, and at the same time, you've got Chianti Classico, which has actually changed its regulations right. to allow its members to make more uh, powerful, more, I think, more more interesting, more concentrated wines. And they've just created a whole new category on top oh, of I know Gran, Gran Selezione. Selezione. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the whole theory behind that is while it is Sangiovese based, it is a very small production of very intense, concentrated, elegant wine. So yeah. there but lots, I mean, one of the things I love about the world of wine is you teach people the rules, and by the time they come to take the exam two yeah. years later, the, the rules have, have all changed. changed. Yeah, and you know, this is actually, for folks who don't know, Sangiovese is is one of the you know great grapes of Italy. It, yep. it shows up in a lot of wines, certainly in yep. all of the wines in Tuscany. And um, that's the part where Paul was definitely on point. And so when what's sort of... In, one of the few places I was on point. Uh, no, no, this is Paul Duncan. You're never oh, on okay. point. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> pa- never Paul Wagner, point. never. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, so one of the interesting things, and this and the rules have changed, as Paul was right, um, which is that for a while there, so Sangiovese is the is the base grape for the Chianti region, the Chianti Classico, among others. But if a wine was a hundred percent Sangiovese, it had to be a, a Super Tuscan because it w- didn't fit the rules. That has since changed. So now it can be a hundred percent. And some of those grand sets. Well, Sanos, actually, the, in Chianti Classico, the rule was always there was a minimum. There wasn't a maximum, but there was a minimum amount of Sangiovese. So one, it had of, to be, one of the winemakers that we talked to said that he his Grand Sassiano, which was a hundred percent Sangiovese, yeah. he had to at, for a while marketed as a Super Tuscan. Hmm. Well, yeah, interesting. Now, okay. might have been course, might have been something else at work that I missed, which right, is, or he may not have been Chianti Classico. Ah, entirely possible. Yep. Um, and then the last question on Super Tuscans, because I do like this question, is: Does it have to be from Tuscany? <laughs> this brings to mind my famous my famous menu of a few years ago, which offered me a a, a, a Tuscan style spaghetti bolognese, <laughs> which of course Bologna so, right, isn't yeah, in yeah. Tuscany. But the yeah. answer is because there's no rule for a super for a super Tuscan. It could be from anywhere. Well, technically, but but the people who invented this are Tuscan, and I think they would take exception to that. But the 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 broader picture there is that throughout Italy. And in Spain, less so in France, these wine producers are looking for way within the within the regional regulations. They want to try something that isn't allowed. They go ahead and do it. And if the wine is great, they say, "Okay, I won't call it Chianti. Right. I won't call it Montalcino. I won't call it Rioja. I will call it Bob's Big Red. Um, and call it a super Tuscan or a super Spanish or a super whatever it is and break the rules but create a really good wine. And if I do it well enough and I market it's it right, right, it's right. a good wine and it'll right. be and, successful. And it goes back to the earlier question about price a little bit too because yep. if you do it right, you can charge it. And in fact, you, you will find uh, it's not hard to find a super Tuscan that's made in California because right. they, folks call it a super This is our super Tuscan. It generally means there's some Sangiovese in it. Some Sangiovese in it, That's right. kind of it. All right. right. We have one more <laughs> This is from Lynn, Lynn Pietz in Fresno. This is her story. I forgot I left a few bottles of nice wine in my car trunk one hot Fresno summer day. When I, uh, when I took them out they were that evening, they were hot. Yep. I immediately put them in our chilled wine cabinet to bring down the temperature, but I'm wondering if it was too late to save them. Will a few hours of intense heat definitely ruin a bottle of wine? Lynn, drink them fast. That's all I can say. Because here's the real problem. Yeah, the heat won't help the wine. The heat will cook the fruit a little bit in the wine. But the real problem is that hot wine expands. 
and when it expands, it pushes air and wine out against the cork, and you may even see. Right, and that was actually going to be one of the points. Yeah, if you if, may if see you... the wine leaking out, and even if you don't, if the air starts pushing past the cork, the other thing that happens is as it cools, the air will go back in, and we all know that the ultimate enemy of Air of wine is air more so than heat. I've I've seen them. They they spit. They fight. They 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 have a long time <laughs> feud. Air and wine. It's really it's it's kind of ugly. So well, your wine has been exposed, almost certainly been exposed to air in addition to heat, and nothing good's going to happen to it from here on out. So I would recommend that you drink this stuff fairly soon. Well, that's exactly right. You know, if it's so, it, it at the minimum, it's got a kind of a boost in aging, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's um you know, and at a at a max. And one of the things you should always look for if your wine is too if that cork is out, if there's some wine around the edge of the cork, good luck. I mean, that generally just means you've got it. a problem. Yeah, just yeah, drink yeah. it. Yeah, but uh, but now. drink it. Yeah. I mean, and, and, why you know why put it in the fridge? Just pull it out of the trunk, pull the cork, drink it right there in the driveway. Yeah, and I, um, by the way, it's one of the little bits of, of advice I always give anybody when you go wine tasting. Now, this is obviously you're driving around your hometown that you're not going to probably didn't think to do this, but is just have a cooler in your car or a wine, an insulated wine bag or just a styrofoam, $5 styrofoam sure. cooler. That's always a really easy thing that can, can help yep. protect your wine. Yep, yep. All right. Good. That is it for questions for now. We will have more in the second half of our show. If you'd like to ask a question that we can answer on the show or at least give it a shot, we'll go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, some really bad wine writing, and yes, we want you to suffer through it the way we have to. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Ah, yes. It's time to make people who are not in the wine industry suffer the way we do sometimes. Yeah. This is our regular feature about really horrible wine writing that we call, because we are such clever people, really horrible wine writing. That was, did you come up with that? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. And it would probably qualify as really hor- horrible <laughs> right, writing, yeah. but there you go. There you go. All right. So we have a couple uh, couple examples today. We each brought one in, as we often do. Paul, what is yours? Well, Rick, I have a wine that is made for the young woman who is looking for the perfect wine to marry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Listen to this. Bright yellow gold, complex scents of poached pear, peach, iodine, and toasty lees. Lush and creamy in texture with an exotic quality to its fresh fresh orchard and pit fruit flavors. Ah, uh, here it comes. Here's the part I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suave, rich, and lively. I'm described that way often. Never. Well, especially not rich suave, or suave or lively. rich, and lively. <laughs> Finishing on a dry, refreshingly bitter lemon zest note with very good persistence. You have been described as persistent by yes, some. Yes, yes. But when never suave, rich, or lively. <laughs> usually their persistence is when they're trying to close the door and get me to leave, but yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, Lord, 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 Lord. All right, because it's bright yellow gold, I'm guessing it's a white. Yep. Pear iodine. Yum. I think iodine is generally considered a flaw. Yeah, <laughs> iodine. Something wrong Doesn't that with make the you want to drink two glasses yeah, of it with dinner? Yeah, toasty leaves, lush and cream in texture. With a good fresh order. Well, see, uh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, it's on lees. So, I, I mean, it could be a Chardonnay. Could be. But actually, the real, the real giveaway here is the peach pit. Uh, uh, yeah, pit, pit fruit, pit fruit flavors. flavors. Right. It's actually a Viognier. Viognier. Ah, a Viognier. Yeah, yeah. A suave, rich, and lively Viognier. Yes, it is um, It is the most interesting uh, Viognier, Viognier in the world. Yes. That's right. The right. best Viognier to marry. Yeah. What well, do you got? Mine's a different one. If this is from... Have to, let, allow me to read through this because you're going to love the last line. This is from <laughs> a winery advertising its latest release. Okay. The vintage's milestone. I'm sorry. I'm going to giggle because <laughs> it's just so. It just so makes. Is anyway. The vintage's milestone averaged two weeks early fun, but bud, bud break through harvest. Let me try this again. The vintage's milestones averaged two weeks early fun from bud break through harvest, with some vineyard sites and varieties maturing as much as three weeks early. Okay. Growing conditions were mostly dry and warmer than normal. We had record growing degree days, though the diurnal swing was steady. Flowering set and fruitfulness were extraordinary this year. I'm not even done. And the clusters were large. We thinned most of our 100 acres at lag phase, as usual, but we thinned moderately. And some rows, not at all. We think you will love the resulting wine. <laughs> I love that oh, line. Oh, man. Well, that's like now watching I know a nose wine. job, isn't it? Jeez. <laughs> 
Oh my lord! This is this is the kind of thing that happens so often in the wine world. Is what they tell you all the record growing degree days, though the diurnal swing was steady. Yeah. Can you dance to I've, it? Well, it the has diurnal if, swing. If there's baby? a good saxophone and a little bit of a bass, excellent. Yeah, and we could decode all these things for you. Um, no, let's. But not. we're not going. That's not. another time. No, um, this is. This these is are all for things, somebody who. These thinks, are all about temperature and and things. This is and, for somebody yeah. who thinks that in order to enjoy the music of you, Elton John, you need to know how to build a piano from scratch. You enjoy the music of Elton John? No, yeah. I'm just. Why I'm not? not trying to offend anybody out there? Why not? We are, I'm just saying. Yes, I I loved all of that, and I'm I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and the yeah. great detail of this stuff that, and then it's we think you will love the resulting wine. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We have more questions and some history in the second half of the show. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There are the trumpets. It's time to say, as we often do, one reason we love wine is the way it connects to our history which is why we're bringing you another historic history moment. I think that restaurant disaster we talked about at the top That's of the show. That's pretty historic. That could be historic, that too. Could but, be historic. but we're, we're going to talk about sort of some real history, at least. Okay, good. So, Paul, what is your history moment? Well, I thought we'd take a trip back in the, into the days of the, the early days of our country when Thomas Jefferson, who was uh, based in France for a while and then came back and ultimately became president of the United States and was heavily involved I heard that about them. in designing not only uh, uh, the, uh, the architectural drawings of the White House, but also was planting vineyards at Monticello. Um, and he actually delayed the construction of the White House for about 18 months because he was concerned the wine cellar wasn't big enough. His heart was in the right place then. Thomas Jefferson loved wine. He loved collecting wine. And frankly, he pretty much bankrupted himself buying wine and books throughout his entire life. And if he hadn't sold his library later in his life back to the U.S. government, he would have died penniless. He sold his library back to the government, and it became the Library of Congress. That's right. Well, and you know, it's it's too bad for old Thomas Jefferson that the online auctions didn't exist back then because he could have, <laughs> he could have sold his wine and made a fortune. And he well, but he didn't want to sell it. He well, wanted to I, drink it. I he understand. was a smart man. Yeah, yeah. And he bought he bought wine for Franklin. He bought wine for Washington. He was the sommelier to the whole Continental Congress, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And he um, he also. Well, uh, besides traveling and getting much, many wines from France, he was one of the guys instrumental in the Virginia wine industry, Absolutely. which took a very long time to get started. Yeah. But yes, it, but although, and here's a, here's a great little bit of trivia. Do you know who it was who was his next door neighbor in Virginia and taught him how to grow grapes and make wine in Virginia? Paul Adams. No, Filippo Mazzei. And Mr. Matzei still has a, well, not he, he's since died. I was going to guess. But his family still runs a winery in Chianti Classico, and they still make Matzei wines in Chianti Classico. And they still have letters there signed by Thomas Jefferson that were sent to their great, great, however many greats okay. it is, grandfather. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Pretty well, cool. I, my, my history is a little more recent, but it is an exact day. It's going to lead to something, too. Okay, good. It is November 17th, 1991. This was an, a, really a major moment in American wine, although it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> it was an episode of the show, 60 Minutes, and Morley uh, yes. Safer did uh, okay. a story on the French paradox. That's right. And basically what he said was the French ate really horribly. They smoked like chimneys. They ate all that butter. They ate snails. And yet, they had a lower incidence of heart disease than, than we jogging, weightlifting, low-fat eating Americans. Yes. And, and basically, he uh, credited it to red wine and resveratrol, which mm -hmm. is a, a compound in red wines, and the skins themselves, too, and, and, uh, and said that yeah. that was a huge part. Yep. And in fact, later on, well, in another show coming up, we will talk to um, Hank Beal from Nugget Market, but Hank Beal is a wine director for the Nugget Market chain, and he told me at that time, he remembered people coming in like yep. they had prescriptions from their doctor. Yep. It gave people permission to drink wine, and it, 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 it absolutely changed the U.S. market for wine. Absolutely. And he said, in fact, Hank said people were coming in. They were buying 
cases of red wine. So they missed the point about moderation a little bit. Well, but, but yeah. interestingly enough, you know, I, I worked for some wineries that not only made very good wine, but some wineries who also made some very inexpensive styles of wine. And those wines were on allocation because even the little old Italian grandfather in Hackensack, New Jersey, because he saw that show, suddenly had permission to have a glass of wine with dinner every night. Right. Everybody right. started buying a, gla- a bottle of wine or right. two. And it, it changed the American wine industry in so many ways because at the time, it, what we were drinking really was, was we were drinking white, like Chardonnay and White Zim. And yeah. so yeah. It, it sort of front-loaded the American red wine. And this is gonna bring, we're going to get to this question in a second. Um, and so what happened was— well, Not well, in a second. Well, and we never get anywhere in a second. Well, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going <laughs> to—this is not actually not a question, but— it is a question. This came from, um, <laughs> well, I'm saying it's not a question from our question segment. It came from okay. one of my colleagues, uh, James Morrison, who's a producer here at Capital Public Radio. And uh, I do wine commentary, so I get the, a lot of the station's questions here. Right. And, and right. James says, I don't know much about Merlot, but my impression is it's the red wine people love to hate. Ah, uh, yes. And that connects directly back to this because uh, yes. the red wine that all of the wineries geared up for a non-red wine drinking American palate yeah, was Merlot. Myth. The old myth is that Merlot is Cabernet without the tannin. And, of course, if you've ever had good Merlot, you realize it has tannin. Oh, yeah. Bad description. So, unfortunately, Merlot actually makes some really, really good wines. Oh, absolutely. But, unfortunately, it was sold with an unfulfillable promise to the American public. And then, of course, it had the worst of all possible things happen to it in American wine snobbery. It became popular. Yeah. And well, once it's popular, well, all the wine geeks immediately know that you've got to make fun of it. Yeah. Because and, anything that's popular can't really be good. Absolutely. It's why there's the ABC movement, right? Anything that's but right. Chardonnay, right? If, if you are a, if you're a wine writer and you like what's popular, it's, it's true in a lot of other criticism, although good critics rise above that. It, unfortunately, in the wine world, there aren't many that actually can do that. <laughs> but to go back to what happened was with Merlot was that a lot of wineries, especially the ones that could produce at a large level to to handle this sort of new red fervor, if that's the, the way to describe it, was that they, they made what amounted to a really simple Merlot. Well, they planted it everywhere, too, right. even in places and, where it and, probably shouldn't have been planted. You know, kind of rich, so there oaky, vanilla-y Merlot. There was yeah, an ocean yeah. of bad Merlot out there, and it was easy to make fun of. But, well, but it, it is true. The, but the, at the what time, we, it wasn't. That was, that was the thing, was at the time, it was tasty to the people who, this is the first time they're drinking red wine. Right. And But their palates eventually grew past that really simple Merlot. There's, a, there's still a lot of great Maybe, Merlots we, out there. We should... We should Talk sometime about why popular wines can't be good according to wine. We should talk sometime about that. But now is not the time because we're on other subjects. But but I you know I think that that it's an for me that's always a kind of an interesting subject because I uh, I did a tasting just this past weekend um, with uh, it's a corporate event and I taste I have them taste like flights of similar wines and Mm -hmm, what I did mm -hmm. was I had them taste I didn't tell them which one was which was a well made Merlot a well made it was a Napa. Uh, a Napa Merlot. I was trying to remember if that was Sonoma. A well-made Sonoma cab, as it turned out. Mm-hmm, well-made mm-hmm. Napa Merlot and a, and a well-made Bordeaux. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I said, what's your favorite? And mm-hmm. the room massively was like the Merlot. Uh-huh, yeah. Cause it well, was, I'm from Napa, so I can understand that. Yeah, well, there you go. It was well, I think it was, I think it was as much the grape as it was. It was, you know, and sure. and, and and it was a it was sure. a terrific wine, and okay, it was now, a terrific and wine. Of course, the real wine geeks know that the f- the film that turned all wine geeks against Merlot was Sideways, right? And of course, we all know that at the very end of the film, he's drinking Cheval Blanc when he brings out that bottle of Cheval Blanc that he drinks in the Burger King or wherever he is out of the Styrofoam cup. Of course, if you really know your wine, you know that wine was namely Merlot. Yeah, and that was you know it was that that that's we we need to do a sideways episode we sometime do a because because that but because we go sideways enough. Yeah, we that's true. Uh, <laughs> but but our our point is um, what is, is our point, Rick? Uh, we usually try to have one. <laughs> I, I do think we've got one in this case. I think okay. our, I think our our point in this case is that. Um, Merlot don't, is good wine. Merlot is good wine, and, and don't be a hater. Don't be those people. Don't be the the, right. the snooties. That, don't that, be the you snooties. Know, you know, there was a while there people hated the Be- the Beatles because <laughs> they were too, you know, everybody liked right. them. So not That's that right. Merlot is the Beatles. It's got shorter hair, but it's um, there's a lot of great Merlot out there. Yep. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we come back. More questions from listeners, and next week, that could be you. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. 
we're going back to our mailbag. And by the way, if you'd like to ask a question for our mailbag or something we can answer on the air or take a shot at anyway, go to rickandpaulwine.com. This one comes from Nicole Duncan in Sacramento. And she emailed, and I made sure she was no relationship to Paul because we have two Duncans in the same show. My goodness. No relation. And she had a story. I brought a bottle of wine to a party at a friend's house. It was a cab from... I've removed the name not to... To, to protect the innocent. Well, actually, to not offend a potential sponsor. <laughs> just Smart move, Yeah, right? just thinking. Smart move. And this is back to Nicole. Okay. <laughs> My friend pretended to be grateful, but I could tell she didn't like it. Uh. There was a lot of wine open that night, from what I can remember of it, <laughs> but no one touched that bottle. Ouch. How do I know what to bring to a party? Wow, that's a tough question. I mean, that that gets back to the toughest question a sommelier ever has to answer in the restaurant, which is a customer who turns to the sommelier and says, which wine of yours will I like the most? Yeah. Because until you know yeah. what they like, yeah. it's hard to say. I mean, it dep- depends completely on who the people are at the party. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I had an easy answer for her. You know, that you can you can go to a wine shop. You can ask their recommendation. You can use the ratings. and But... You know, if it's my Aunt Larry who drinks white Zinfandel, bring in a beautiful bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon is not going to be a popular choice. Yeah, and, and, and we're not saying, and we're certainly not saying, um, you know, go big, go big price. We're, we're, we're talking about right. the kinds of wines That's that, right. and, and I have kind of a, I have a couple of guidelines. They're just guidelines, Good. and they um, and they probably make no sense, but they're mine, <laughs> darn it, and I use and them. And you're sticking to them. Yeah, yeah. So if it's a casual party with casual friends who you don't think are wine drinkers, and I know that you're not going to like this because you this is not your favorite grape, um, but I think if you have a casual party with casual wine drinkers, get a nice Zinfandel. Zinfandel is uh-huh. a very popular wine, uh-huh. easy to get, easy to drink, goes with a lot of party-like foods. Okay. So I think Zinfandel is that. Okay. If it's a slightly more sophisticated wine drinker party, Yep, I say get a decent Pinot Noir. Okay. Wouldn't make my wife happy. It's not her favorite, though. She does love some Pinots, but that's not her first choice. Yeah. Um, but but I think that Pinot Noir is one of those wines. It actually is one of the wines that um, that they sell a lot by the glass in, in restaurants because people are interested in trying Pinot Noir. Right. So, so if you've got right. that kind of a group. And then, okay. and then if you can find one and you kind of want to be cool, Yep. I always want to be cool. You desperately want to be cool. I would love to be. Actually, we don't think that you should try to be cool about wine. In fact, one of the principles here at Bottle Talk is don't don't try to be cool. Don't be cool. However, in case case you got the moment, a Malbec. Uh Because Malbec Malbec is the other one. And in fact, I was just having this conversation with uh, one of the bar managers at a restaurant where I do some classes and I'm saying they were right. selling a ton of it by the glass. Uh-huh. Yep. And so so Malbec is one of those wines that has a sort of a curiosity factor around it right. and at least they'll get it open. Those okay, are my so guidelines. I, okay, so I have a different guideline, which is if you're going to a party... Don't do what Rick says. That's you, usually that's your guideline. That's right. Don't yeah. do not do in under any circumstances <laughs> what Rick says. That's a really good when guideline. When you are going to a party and you know it's going to be a party and you're asked to bring a bottle of wine to help the party be fun, bring bubbly. Yeah, well, that's because true, Because everybody yeah. loves bubbly. Bubbly, yeah. everybody drinks bubbly, and nobody tastes a glass of bubbly and says, ew. They just say, cool, bubbly, there's a party in every bottle, next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Very true. Very. That's always... why I get invited to more parties than you do, Rick. I, th- I think I think people just don't like me. <laughs> I can't blame them, really. All right, so we have... We have from uh, Scott Acuna, we have what amounts to two questions, and one of them is not a wine question, but I love this question. Okay. Scott Acuna lives in Santa Clara. You only love it because you know the answer. I know the answer because, you know, I'm See? also a food guy. There you go. So, But I do love the question because he asked us, is a tomato a vegetable or a fruit? Yeah. <laughs> and here's yeah. the thing. The answer is both. And, in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on this. <laughs> that... There, I, I don't know if there's another food stuff that actually has this, but I do know that the to, the tomato was ruled. And here's why. Well, now was this a was this a conservative or a liberal Supreme Court that made this? Well, decision? it's back in eighteen. I think what's the eighteen ninety three. So okay. I'd have to go back and do my research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to guess conservative because <laughs> yeah. it was eighteen ninety three. Um, it so biologically it's defined as a fruit because yes. the seeds are interior. It grows on right. a tree like that. But having said that. What happened was in the late 1800s, 1887, the U.F. tariff laws changed, and they imposed a higher tax on vegetables but not on fruits. Uh-huh. And and so there was a fight over whether tomatoes were one of those because why, tomato, tomato why importers— Why would you charge a higher tax on vegetables than on fruits? Because, because you want people be, to eat fewer vegetables? I, and, 
I think that it was probably a lobbying from the fruit industry. <laughs> the fruit industry was, or, was yeah. pushing so people would eat more fruit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the case went to the Supreme Court in 83. They ruled. And I kind of like the reasoning that a tomato is a vegetable based on the popular definition that classifies vegetables by use, meaning generally they're served with dinner, not with dessert. Excellent. So if you eat it with dinner, it's a vegetable. If you eat it for dessert, yes. it's a fruit. If you care, by the way, the case is Nix versus Hedden, H-E-D-D-E-N. If you want to look it up, I had to look that part of it up, but I knew the rest of it. I just uh-huh, thought that. Uh-huh. But Scott also asked us a, a wine well, question. Well, you know, there's one other. This, this, There's a more recent exploration of this topic because don't forget that when Ronald Ketchup. Reagan was in the White yep. House and was people were concerned about the nutritional value of student lunches, he pointed out that ketchup is a vegetable. Right. Well— which, and now it turns out he was sort of in the ballpark, although oh. it wasn't much of a vegetable oh, yeah. or a nutritional value. <laughs> but he was at least because that was one of the things that that the criticism was about was that, well, it's not even not a vegetable in that it's a little packet. It's that also that it's a fruit. But it turns out yeah. legally, legally it wasn't a vegetable. vegetable. So who knew? But what's in that packet is primarily sugar. Well, yes, yes, yep. yes. And that's why you need it with, eat it with French fries. And that is a course a vegetable. <laughs> no, no. All right. So here. did he have another question? He did have a real, a real <laughs> okay, question. Good. Scott said, in fact, this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. <laughs> says, I really like Pinot Noir, and there are always a lot of them on a restaurant wine list, but when I go to the supermarket aisle, most stores, the little section's so small. Why is that? Mm, that's a good question for it Hank It is a Beale. good question. Yeah, it is. Well, we should ask that. We, we don't, should we, ask that we, question. We, we have him Beale. coming in in another show, though, for yeah, another, yeah, yeah. another time. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, the One of the reasons that I know, talking to my restaurant friends, I don't really know much about the retail side, but my restaurant friends talk about who the customer is. And the, and I do right. know from my book about Barefoot, which was, was about distribution, is that the, the, the wine buyer in a supermarket in particular is a different wine buyer. And they tend to buy wines by volume, and they come back for the same wine often right. over and right. over, which is why you see so many Chardonnays and so many right. Cabs and Merlots and, and, and Zinfandels, too. But the, it's— Pinot Noir just doesn't – It one, it takes a little bit more to make good Pinot Noir, so they tend to be slightly more expensive. So, the, But the, they don't have a lot of pricey wines at supermarkets. There's a handful of – but it's the same handful of wines. In fact, yep. the wines that they um, sell in, yep. in yep. restaurants. But in restaurants where people buy by the glass and they experiment and they try – while we were talking about Malbec earlier, people are more willing to try something that they might not buy regularly because they're only buying one glass of it. Okay, so I have a sl- – not a bad theory. I have a slightly – different theory which says that most restaurants will tell you that if if you are a winery or a wine salesperson and you call in a restaurant one of the first questions they'll ask you is is it available in the supermarket oh yeah Yeah. because they don't want to be carrying wines and charging three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars for wines that you can buy in the supermarket for a whole lot less than yeah 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 so they're looking for smaller production wines that don't have the production size to get into the supermarket business pinots work great for that yes there are relatively few people who make lots and lots of pinot noir and and those big pinots they're in the supermarket right right and they that's true and that actually maybe is 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 the best part of that answer because the other part of the supermarket my part is the best part well, that, that the last part about getting the, oh, okay. the big production, there was oh, – here, I always hate it when I have to say this, Paul. I think you may be right. Um, <laughs> but it's certainly the, the, the distribution end of it because right. I do know this about the um, the wine world. And once again, that's the stuff I learned doing the book on Barefoot about right. the distribution level is that, that both stores and wineries, but stores in particular, don't want to buy wines that they can't get reordered quickly. Right. When they don't want holes right. on their shelves, they want right. to know the wines coming in. Yep. They want to know that that they don't even have to think about the wine coming in. That the yeah. people There's who a are truck distributing every week and it's going to arrive and they and know it's going to stop and they it in know there. the sort of the rate of which the sales will right. go or they're checking themselves. There's all kinds yep. of things. And so yep. when you talk about wines like Pinot Noir, like you said, there's only a handful that make at that level. Yep. It doesn't quite sell and at that level. And that gets back to something you said earlier, which is Pinot Noir actually is hard to make and hard to grow. You can't Wait grow a Pinot. So I was kind of right too, huh? Oh, absolutely, Rick. Woo! You're you are always right. <laughs> Just being nice. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Pinot is hard to make. Harder yeah. and, and hard to grow. So you can't grow it in as many places, which means you're going to make less of it. And it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. All right. So, Scott, I hope that's an answer, but definitely um, legally. The uh, tom- real question is which Pinot Noir goes with tomatoes? 
Not many, I hope. Actually, you know, you brought in a description once of a what, Pinot Noir that had tomato yeah, in it. Yeah, we didn't like that. We didn't so like I, that wine. So probably not. <laughs> All right, we're zipping up the mailbag and moving on. If you'd like to ask a question about wine or anything, go to rickandpaulwine.com. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our food and wine pairing sort of fits this time of year. We're, we're late season. And it's something actually that, that we do a lot of at my house because my wife loves these things, um, which is, and this is actually for the veggie lovers out there too. In fact, this mm. could be for a vegetarian pairing, mm-hmm. which is. So tomatoes? Yes. Well, I wouldn't use them in this, although <laughs> some people do. We're talking about roasted vegetables, fall oh, yeah. roasted vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of olive oil, bit yep. of salt and pepper. That's it. Stick them yep. in the oven, yep. 350, 375. Yeah, yep. always a good idea. Yep. Um, it's a it's a great it's a it's a really is it 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 makes you happy for fall and I'm not yep. I you know it's it yep. wonderful I agree great dish. so so what great would you dish. pair with that well I'm going for my dear friends over in Tuscany I would go since we visited there before Chianti Classico uh, Vino Nobile de Montepulciano but something that's got some um, acidity to it because those those veggies have a little oil on them. You mm-hmm. want something to cut through that oil a little bit. Delicious combination. Man, put that a, a little side of pasta, and you got a delicious and unbelievably healthy dinner. Yeah, and you know, you're right, actually, the because um, having been there in, uh, what, this is October, well, now it was last month, yep. um, we uh, we had some dishes roasted, the roasted vegetables, Chianti Classicos were really brilliant, yep. and the Gran Sazioni's, which was a little richer, really brilliant. Mine is, I'm going the other direction. I'm going for the earth. You know, the, the, the earth in roasted vegetables, and when I do it, there's lots You're of supposed mushrooms to wash in there. Them before yes. you roast them, Rick. That, I don't put the dirt clods in. <laughs> you don't put darn it, darn it! I knew I was You're doing something wrong. Supposed to wash the vegetables because a roasted dirt clod. <laughs> I'm telling you, so not... we used to bake them because when you threw them, they stuck <laughs> together better. But... <laughs> that's, that's what I do. I do throw them at my wife. She's running around the house ducking my dirt clods. It's never. It's, it's never. And a what good wine idea. do you serve well, when you're throwing those dirt clods? Roasted dirt clods is a good earthy syrah. Really, an, uh, a syrah. In, uh, yeah, okay. and ideally, it's sort of the old world syrah that uh-huh. has a little that has bit more dirt clod in it. It has dirt clod in it. <laughs> I was going to say more in the earth palate than the the big uh, dark fruit. Although there's that too, but those are things Excellent. that, that go well yeah. too. All right. Yeah. Well, we're, we're we're ending the show before more, somebody gets a dirt clod in the eye. So that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Matt Pacini is our engineer, and thank you to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask a question that we will answer on the show, or at least give a shot at it, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. We will always be nice, we promise. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's look at the price of the bottle, especially if your server is hustling you, Ouch. and if you're and if you're confused, a tomato's a vegetable, it turns out. <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends... Or with tomatoes, or, or us. Yes, well, or with us. <laughs> I'd say especially with us.